0: Unlike me. Hello and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name is Michael Fenton-Stevens and I'm the host of this podcast in which I ask my guests to choose five things from their life that are important enough to them that they would want to keep them safe in a time capsule. There is a twist, though. Four of the things they choose can be things they cherish and hold dear, no matter how seemingly insignificant they seem to us. But one has to be something they wish they didn't have to remember. We then banish it from their life by burying it in the ground. Playing this game with me in this episode is the actress Anna Chancellor. Anna has had a stellar career since leaving Lambda, where she trained, and is probably best known for playing Duckface in the Richard Curtis film Four Weddings and a Funeral. But she's also appeared in, and this is just a brief selection Pride and Prejudice, Kavanagh QC, Cold Lazarus, Longitude, Tipping the Velvet, Forty Something, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Spooks, Rebus, Suburban Shootout, St. Trinians, My Family, Marple, Law and Order UK, Silent Witness, Miranda, Hustle, Waking the Dead, Lewis, The Brilliant Series, Pram Face, A Touch of Cloth, Inside Number Nine, Downton Abbey, Shetland, Ordeal by Innocence, Death in Paradise, and The Crown. She's twice been nominated for an Olivier Award for her performances in the plays Stanley and Private Lives, and once for a BAFTA as Best Supporting Actress in The Hour. Coming soon, you'll be able to see her as Lord Vetinari in the TV adaptation of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels about The Watch. If I told you the rest, we'd never get to hear the fabulous Anna Chancellor and the things she wants to put in her time capsule, which I'm delighted to say was not recorded over the internet. Now there's a rarity we can all enjoy. So you've had a chance to think about things from your life.
1: Yes, I have briefly, yeah.
0: Briefly, Mm. maybe the best way to do it. So what would you like to put inside a time capsule? To preserve.
1: Well, I think the first thing I'll put in our time capsule mm. will be a sort of commune I was brought up near, but not living in. And this was in Somerset in the 70s called Nettlecombe, which is West Somerset. And I, my parents divorced when I was young and we went to live with my stepfather in this kind of large sort of rectory, I suppose, kind of the, like the big house. And there were five... Well, there were seven of us all together, seven children. And my parents were often absent. <laughs> and my mother said... They were often absent, and they were quite upper class. And we had everything, I suppose, that you would need. We were kind of, you know, well-heeled, so to speak, or my stepfather was, anyway. Mm. And he was a loving, very welcoming man. It wasn't... But there was... Something in it, maybe, that was a little bit desolate, you might say. And down the road from us, um, separated, I suppose it had originally been part of the same estate. So we were up the valley in this large house called Coombe. And down at the bottom of the valley, which was maybe a mile and a half, was this sort of dilapidated, very romantic group of buildings. The main house had been sort of burnt down and rebuilt. But it wasn't there that people lived. They lived round this courtyard, this sort of 17th-century courtyard that was um, maybe very French-looking, not not a particularly English place. And off that courtyard were little houses, and which had been part of, I suppose, some bigger estate. Mm. There had been this, these incredible um, greenhouses that had been built by Paxton, who built the Palm Houses. In yes. but they'd all fallen down and. Within this group of people, they were all artists and um, they had huge printing presses, (laughs) which had been bought from um, Canada, I think, in the 19th century. Great big letter presses, huge, I mean, filling up whole barns. And they'd be um, screen printing and etching and um, making things. And there were different studios. And... The garden was called the Pleasure Garden, which, again, in the 19th century would have been um, bought over from people's... I think they were called the Trevelyans, the original family. And um, they would have bought, you know, monkey puzzle trees and um, exotic plants. Yeah. So there, there was this very kind of dark garden that surrounded the courtyard that, were, again, everything was quite falling down and, and in disrepair maybe mm-hmm. a little bit. But my best friend lived there. Um, she was called Rebecca. Her father was an artist and her mother made jewellery. And I would um, get on my pony. We, we had horses. <laughs> and, um, and I would go and ride down through the, the park, it was called. And I'd ride down and I would pretend to myself, in order to sort of keep myself amused, that I was escaping the Nazis and things like that. Oh. So it was the, maybe the beginning of me creating my imagination, um, inventing and imagining things, and riding my pony, and that was my journey to get down there. Mm. So I'd get there and I'd tie up my pony, and we would play on things like a sort of disused psychedelic tractor that somebody just sort of left there. Yeah. And some of them would have built <laughs> like an old boat, um, in the middle of the courtyard, which we would play in. and everything falling apart? Well, probably looking back on it, maybe a bit. I mean, it was, you know, they weren't rich. It was the yeah. 70s. It was a commune.
0: Self-sufficient, were they self-sufficient? They,
1: were, they grew their own vegetables and probably bought a few things. And they had these kind of projects where one of the women who I got was very close to, she would be doing some project where she would dye all the sheep. <laughs> different colours and she would make a work of art which was called a, um, a field in Somerset which was she'd dress up as a tractor and be pulling sort of bits of thread and bits of fabric which would come down and be the fields changing and the mm-hmm. you know and it was for me it was a place of escape from maybe the sort of rigidity of the sort of remnants of the background and the class that I'd come from, Mm. which was probably falling apart itself, really. But I found great solace and comfort and imagination was alive here. Mm. And they were people who... I mean, obviously, all the people were different, but um, one particular couple, they were called Lizzie and Julian, and they were probably maybe only in their early 20s. But my grandmother had commissioned Julian to do a portrait of me when I was probably, I don't know, 12 or something. Mm. And he was, and still is, the most sort of lovely, gentle, creative, sensitive man, but kind of boy man, smoking joints and stuff while he (laughs) was drawing me. And we'd sit by the stove and and then, you know, there'd be their, I don't know, homemade bread and all that sort of thing. And he would often play music, we danced to in jury. I mean, I just loved him, but she, his wife, was, was, was a bit more sort of serious about her work and harder working and took, took art and being an artist extremely seriously. And they, she worked as an art teacher in Bristol. They both did. And I suppose it was the first time also in my life where I met people who were connected with their work with their creativity very seriously. It was a calling. It was a way of life. And for me, I think it also represented and felt like a sort of coziness and an intimacy. Which you weren't going to get home. Wasn't going to be like that at home.
0: No, even with seven children.
1: Well, we certainly had our own thing going on. We were quite feral and we were quite wild. And my parents, I'm sure, found us difficult to cope with. And that's probably why they went on so many holidays. <laughs> but we had nannies and stuff. Yes. Nannies that wouldn't stay very long. It wasn't like they were really running a particularly coherent... They were just doing their best. You know You know, as you get older that your parents were just doing their best. Mm-hmm.
0: So was your education more well, regimented?
1: Well, I was at a convent and I went to a boarding school when I was seven. I went to the local boarding school. Well, so I was, a, I was what's called a weekly boarder. But that was, again, that school was a bit sort of falling apart. And I don't, and, and I remember once, this wasn't through any means of being sort of naughty, but I think I hadn't gone home one weekend and there was no teachers around. And we had all these waste paper baskets full of paper. And we had open fires at school, which is odd, isn't it? Yeah. And I went and remember gathering all the pieces of paper. Actually, I was a paramaniac then and I am now. <laughs> and I remember emptying all the um, waste paper baskets. I must have only been eight or nine on this fireplace in the main hall. And I set fire to the chimney. (laughs) but there was I don't know what was going on so it wasn't a cruel place but I was lonely I had I was the youngest of my siblings they'd all gone off to sort of more serious boarding schools and so I was lonely and I would go home and I had this rather awful nanny called Anne Craigie who was, she was from Belfast and she was tough and she used to make you eat and you take a mouthful and you had to put your knife and fork down after every mouthful and chew, which I now actually think probably wasn't bad, uh, idea of digesting anything. And then I went to a convent when I was 10 in Dorset, which was um, strict and full of nuns and oh, Lord. we had to wear two pairs of pants and everything. <laughs> um, <laughs> And so I suppose with these with these influences from my child, my parents were divorced. They didn't often see my dad. My father was a sort of distant, very good-looking, gay, found children very difficult to deal with. And we'd go on these quite sort of kind of eccentric holidays with him where he would be touring what he called the continent. And he would be selling old books. He was a book dealer. Mm. And he'd be sort of flogging his books would arrive in Italy and go, and we'd be on Lake Como or something, and he'd go and see some contessa, and <laughs> leave me and my brother in the car, and we'd have terrible fights, <laughs> and burn holes in their uh, car with um, the cigarette lighter. My father would go insane; would he hit you more or less? He'd hit you, and sometimes he might leave you alone and go and get food. On his, he was just he was.
0: Clueless. He <laughs> really didn't want you around.
1: He must have done in a way. He'd fought my mother very hard for the divorce and had fought, she, he'd wanted custody of the children. He was right. very, very upset because his whole life as this married man in the 60s was shredded and I think he knew that it wasn't going to be easy to get back. It wasn't. No. I mean, it's terrible, and I think now, of what my dad went through yeah. because of being gay and that time and his background and... You know.
0: And, well, it was an absurd time, wasn't it?
1: It was awful.
0: I, I remember uh, old actors from that time.
1: Actually, my father, I think, would have been a good actor. Mm. He was from that kind of background where I think they looked down on actors. Yes. He was a mixture of being sort of very subversive, extremely kind of wild and funny, and yet deeply sort of conventional, and it was quite an unhappy mixture.
0: <laughs> mm. Well, that sort of convention but... is imposed on people.
1: That's I know, thing, but, I mean, let's face it, you maybe do... Well, I mean, maybe you have a choice to shrug it off. Maybe you don't. Who knows what choice? I don't really know about choice in that.
0: So you going to the commune, was that your first real attempt to to do that?
1: Well, it wasn't an attempt because it was just life. It was just how how things were. And my parents were close with these people. They weren't like, oh, where are you going? They were close and they would maybe buy art. So there was a sort of slightly patronage sort of relationship going on. But then... There would be things like uh, in May Day, they would, you know, erect a maypole and <laughs> dress up the kids in sort of old fashioned costumes. And we'd dance around the maypole. And one of my, Rebecca's father, he was part of the local brass band and they, he played the sousaphone. And there were parties there with big bonfires and they were community Oh, they it, were a community. It sounds idyllic. Yeah, they weren't just a community with arts. You know, everybody would come. Mm-hmm. It wasn't. They weren't separate or um, sort of oddballs. No. Um, or or exclusive. Or no, 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 not at all. They, that I think that also was one of the things that was um, alive for me was that there was this openness and this. Um, just accepting this. Well, they they were like just everyone else. The thing about if you come from a family that has been and considered itself important in some ways, Mm. it has a hell of a lot of restrictive thinking about it and negative thinking. And because when people or a class or a system put themselves above other people, it is depressing. There's no freedom. There's no softness of mind, no raising of consciousness. No. (laughs) It's a, a, a very unhappy cage. I think it was for my mother, but she never was able to really rise out of that because the, the programming from such a young age was so intense for her.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: She'd also come from a very Catholic um, upbringing. So when um, she left my father, even though it was known that he was gay or, uh, or maybe they didn't, they might have thought of that, you see, as an illness.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it was. she was ostracised by her family.
0: For divorcing? For
1: divorcing. Wow. Yeah. It was very serious and she was left on the outside of it and it was unhappy for her. And then she had these very wild <laughs> children <laughs> who were difficult to control, <laughs> who were riding their ponies at breakneck speed and sort of crashing into fences and doing all sorts of bad things.
0: Oh, my God. Yeah, boy. yeah. Not easy.
1: But I think with both my parents... They felt constrained and constricted, but they didn't have the confidence to embrace a new... Of course, the 60s, it was alive and available, yeah. but not for them. Uh, they didn't have the, the access or the, or the ability, or maybe they had been too um, damaged as kids. Yes. And I feel that there was a lot of pain left over from the First World War. My great-great-grandfather was the son of the Prime Minister Asquith at the time. And Asquith must have been... I, I don't actually know that much about him, but I know he stopped the women's vote.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I know that he was a very faithless husband. Mm. And his son died in the First World War. And that led his, his wife, young wife, to convert to Catholicism in the 20s. Right. So there was this grappling to deal with this incredible grief... Obviously, across England, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't know how we helped those women and those children, how they were helped through their group. She turned to Catholicism. But how much solace does that very structured, organised religion really give people?
0: Only in its structure, I think.
1: That sort of yearning and that need within people was not met (laughs) by the Catholic Church. No. As we know. Yes, yes. I suppose what I'm saying in a way through this particular story, in order to heal, properly heal, you probably do need creativity. You probably do need community. Mm-hmm. You may, you do maybe need to kind of slightly grow your own food a bit, you know, yeah. to be in contact with things. And I think in the, at Nettlecombe, there was this relationship with children. Children were welcomed. Children were... Enjoyed. I don't think I felt from any other grown ups that I met that I was um, sort of just cheerfully received.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Not, not no big deal, you know. No, no. Uh, they weren't overly concerned by any of us kids, but I suppose I felt kind of maybe something akin. Love might be a bit of a generalization, but. Belonging, maybe?
0: Mm.
1: When I think of it now, they could easily have thought we were assholes living up the hill.
0: <laughs> oh, God, here they come again. <laughs> yeah, but
1: I think, actually, we had charm.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure <sorry> you did. <laughs> Little girl on a pony.
1: <laughs> think, of course you did. And the others. It wasn't just me. Of they loved the did. others, yeah, too.
0: Yeah, but the, the great thing is, all children, and, and adults always forget this, but children always remember when an adult pays attention to them.
1: It's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. Because that's never been my problem. I've got many character defects, but um, enjoying children is not one of them. I can't understand why people aren't interested in children.
0: They don't even listen to them.
1: I know, but I find them so fascinating. Yeah. You can ask a child anything. So they, I love to get children on their own and ask them a little bit about their parents. <laughs> I love that. i ask them about their teacher. You just drop, you know, and they're like, chat, 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 yeah, chat. And... Uh, Yes. They answer your questions. Yeah. For somebody kind of rather nosy like me, they're much more open. Maybe you could say you're being a little bit deceitful asking them leading questions, but. Uh, they,
0: they want to tell you.
1: They want to tell you. Perhaps
0: I should do this podcast with children.
1: Yeah, but very interesting. Would be. Yeah.
0: I, I might try it. I You'd might try it with my grandchildren.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: Well, there we are. All right. Well, for your first item into the time capsule, I should definitely put lovely Nettlecombe. Yeah. And Rebecca can go
1: in there. I love Rebecca. There we are. Exactly. I was. I think I was terrible to Rebecca and bullied her and used to pin her down. And things, but <laughs> she seemed to forgive me. <laughs>
0: yeah. All right. Well, that's the first thing in the time capsule. Yeah. So, um, so what do you want to put in second?
1: Well, second, I um, when I came to London. I was 16, I suppose. I went to drama school at 19. I found drama school maybe a difficult place to settle. I was at Lambda. I think um, I was all over the place. You know, we would be, as as I maybe said, that we'd had this slightly erratic upbringing. (laughs) I didn't really know how to look after myself. I didn't know how to sort of make my bed. I didn't know anything. And uh, I ended up living in this woman's house, this very rich woman. She's an heiress, sort of thing, in Hill Gate. <laughs> She'd inherited a, a beer brewery or something. Anyway, <laughs> they, she lived in Hill Gate, had this fantastic house. Again, that's a slightly 70s theme. It had this kind of like very cool 70s, sort of like a proper habitat, but kind of before habitat kind of type kitchen. To me, it seemed very glamorous, and a bathroom on a like a sort of platform and whatever. <laughs> Loads of people around, writers, whatever. And uh, I lived in her house, looking after her kids, going to drama school, often late, I think. I like the idea that you had to actually be somewhere. So, you know, all these things were difficult for me. But down the road, Portobello Road, was a pub called the Warwick Castle. And the Warwick Castle was a sort of hub of all the kind of misfits from sort of West London at the time, Mm. when it was more the place to be rather than the place very much not to be right now. Now I think they call it the mild, mild West. (laughs) Then the Warwick was um, a proper pub. It had a landlord called Seamus, proper Irish landlord, you know, Mm. like the real thing, knew how to run a pub. And then you'd have like the pool table that was surrounded by like, often like the older West Indian guys would be playing pool. Then you'd have absolute fucking nutters, like there was all these different characters. One guy was even called Pete the Murderer <laughs> because he was a murderer. <laughs> yeah, that was his name. <laughs> and um, they were very exciting people. There was a band at the time called Rip, Rhythm and Panic, and the main singer was a girl called Nana Cherry. I don't know if you oh, know. Oh yeah, her. yeah. Who was on Beyond Glamorous? Beautiful woman. Beautiful, and the band were wild. I remember going to see them play, and she was like wearing a sheet, like a kind of toga. Hmm. And her first song was I'm Wet and It's Not Sweat. <laughs> <laughs> Straight from the convent, right? Yeah. But in the pub, I met a guy. Um, well, actually, I'd met him before in, at the Edinburgh Festival at an Ian Jury concert. And Ian had got on stage very frail and very kind of like weak looking. Hmm. And this this guy who was helping him on stage was in a sort of skinhead with a kilt, and he was helping Ian in this kind of matchy way. But then suddenly the lights went on and the blockhead started playing and Ian sang, I'm spasticus, I'm spasticus, (laughs) autisticus. And then Jock, who is the right-hand guy, just said to the audience, dance, you fuckers, dance. Brilliant. And I remember thinking, my God, he's great. Yeah. Then we met him afterwards, jock, or probably already, like, well-gone drunk. And then, about four months later, I was in the Warwick Castle. Kevin Allen, do you remember Keith Allen? Dad, the yeah, Allen brothers, both
0: of them, yes.
1: And, um, and all sorts Lily of... Lily
0: Allen's dad. That's right. Weird world. This
1: marvellous model, Inez de la Fresange, Lord Patrick, whatever, the whole lot were in there. Mm. People who had... Um, who had for some reason or other left their backgrounds. They came to this one pub. And um, I then went to the pub one night and saw Jock reading a poem in a suit, shades. And I remember saying, hey, do you remember me? And he like took his glasses off and they were all like blue sparkly eyes and everything. And I thought he was just so romantic. Hmm. And within three months I was pregnant. I was at drama school. And that was that, really. I had to leave drama school early. Everyone thought that that was Anna's time was up.
0: That was the end of it. That was the end of it. Yeah.
1: Jock hadn't had a job since 1971. (laughs) He worked at Stiff Records, supposedly, but really he was the sort of mascot of people like Shane McGowan with The Pogues or Mm. The Clash. He was like the only roadie who couldn't change a plug. (laughs) He was absolutely useless.
0: Yeah. But he was genuine.
1: To me, he was captivating. I mean, (laughs) we ended up living in a basement flat in Shepherd's Bush. My sister lived above me. We had the baby. And um, for Jock, for me, although there were so many things that everybody quite rightly must have thought were appalling, my parents wanted me to get the baby adopted and all sorts of things, and I totally understand it didn't look good. But what Jock had... In that little basement flat, we had a family, and I felt Jock was my champion. And maybe I hadn't felt that because my parents were not able to give you that feeling, mm. especially not my father. And Jock, my sister living upstairs, she'd say, you two are driving me mad. You, you're, I hear you talking all night long. And Jock was a Samuel Beckett fan. And he would re you know, and Viv vivstantial, and he'd introduce me, we'd play a lot of music and, you know, smoking, what were we smoking? Piccadilly cigarettes and probably a lot of joints. <laughs> but I didn't know what it was to be an alcoholic. I didn't have an idea about the blackouts and, you know, and it was tough. It was tough for both of us. I was so untogether that I would, when Poppy was older, I think job, we'd broken up when she was about four, but I was constantly losing my keys, which I still am. You're just born with your character in a way. (laughs) And I used to have to go to Poppy's school and get her out of the school so I could squeeze her through the gate of the bars of our basement flat to let me in. She was like my key. (laughs) But the Warwick was a place that will never exist again. Mm. It was of its time. Again, it was community. They'd have a, a, a cricket team, Welsh Ray. It was Jock the Scot, Welsh Ray, Pete the Murderer, Anna the Actress. <laughs> you know, that was, everyone just had names.
0: And they were the sort of places, there weren't many of them in London, but if you knew about them, you were in. And if you didn't know about them, there was no way of finding out.
1: No. I reckon they were quite snobby as well as to who was allowed in. Yeah, today, sure.
0: The name. I mean. Keep it exclusive. Yeah. Just our sort. It was just. But then not our sort, all sorts.
1: Well, all sorts are our sort, aren't they? Once mm. people have sort of discarded something, a bit like we were saying about what maybe the move my parents couldn't make, which was to discard their background and move somewhere forward, it was an attempt. It was just an attempt. For for everyone to rid themselves of maybe the programming, in a way, it doesn't matter what class you come from, right? Joff was from a very working class family. Mm-hmm. His father died when he was young. His, his father had been had been um, captive in Burma, and then he came back and he worked for um, the local power station, and and died of uh, very quickly with seven children of asbestos poisoning, and leaving seven children. You know they were poor,
0: mm.
1: poor, 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 and. Um, you know, whatever happened to Jock then was too difficult for him to overcome in many ways. You know, sometimes things are too big for people to get away from. And in Scotland, working class Scotland is a very puritanical, judgmental society. And
0: um, Rather like we were saying about the society that you came from.
1: This is why we understood each other. Mm. There was something we got about each other. I mean, in a way, it was not so easy for me because I was only young. I was only 21 and I had a kid. And then once I had a kid, I couldn't go out so much. No. I didn't have... I missed out sometimes on what other 21-year-olds would have been doing. And I mm. certainly wasn't working, but...
0: My wife, the same thing. Uh-huh. you young children. With you? With me. We didn't go out for years. Yeah. Years. I mean, literally, we just didn't go out.
1: You're probably better parents than me because I would take Poppy <laughs> and, I, and she'd be on the dance floor at sort of four in the morning. But you <laughs> had more than one, right? Yes. So if you have one, they're more portable.
0: We went to the theatre with babies and yeah. things like that and we went to parties and all sorts of things. Yeah, you, you know? did
1: too, yeah. We did a bit. But there's only a certain amount, right? Yeah. For me, I think it probably kept me on the straight and narrow bit. I had to be home by 12 a lot of the time, especially once I'd broken up with Jock. Mm. but I had my sister live upstairs and my other sister live around the corner. And although we were very hedonistic, all of us, even with children, um, Will self-married my sister. He, <laughs> so you can imagine what was going on. Yes. But, <laughs> you know, you hold, there are some things that were not so good for our kids, I'm sure, very bit, bit un, un, unstable. Maybe they didn't always feel totally safe, but they were a group. And they loved each other and they love each other now. So it was a, maybe a bit of a sort of ramshackle existence. But for me, going to the Portobello Road from Shepherd's Bush, which isn't far, for me, it was going into town. <laughs> and I'd go to the Portobello and I'd park my little bashed up old car and I would know the people in the market. But a lot of them knew and loved Jock. And Jock was so proud of me. I remember, he was like, this is Anna. And, you know, he was proud of his baby and proud of me. So he... Through Jock, everybody loved and probably thought Jock was a nutter, which he was, but were fond of him, and so I had an in in that way.
0: Mm. I mean, I can see that many people, having gone through that, would go, I made one of the biggest mistakes of my life. I've met this bloke, I found his kilt attractive, mm. Mm. and it ruined my life. But you see that as just a joyous
1: time. Well, there were times when I was extremely scared I felt I remember thinking I'm just like hanging off the jaws of the DHSS I felt that I had gone somewhere where I was gonna never come back from but I think I was given a gift of sort of open-mindedness and a joy I had a joy for life mm-hmm. and I loved my child you know that's a gift yeah. I understand that doesn't always happen for some people no no But we, I'm sure if I hadn't been with Jog, if I had married somebody from my own background and had maybe had money, I might have had a nanny and a this and a that, maybe like my mother, right? who didn't really bond with her kids because she wasn't thrown in with them. And maybe this subconsciously is what I'm playing out, is a reason to be bond, you know, a reason to stay. Because at Nettlecombe, I used to see these mothers with their kids Mm. and they were together and close with them and they would do things with them. And this was potent for me. Mm. And so in some way I was reenacting, I was reenacting some world, but not obviously in a chaotic way, but... I was very close with Poppy. And when Jock had left, me and Poppy would, I'd say to her, you can either go to bed or you can come and see a foreign language film. (laughs) So we would go and watch Fellini or something. (laughs) And then we started at that time, me and Kevin Allen, doing the Notting Hill pantomimes. Mm, Famous. Yeah. And um, at that time, there were people around the Warwick Castle... There were set designers and set builders. So we'd have these unbelievable sets, like whole... We did Peter Pan, where there'd be a whole boat and riggers. <laughs> and then I said, I need a piano player. They said, well, there's this guy, Ed. And, you know, go round to his house. Went round to his house, knocked on the door. It turned out that Ed was a sort of child genius, like a sort of Mozart or something, who only very young, but was doing film, was working with Michael Kamen, the, um, the film composer. Yeah. So Ed did all the music for our pantomime. And I redressed him as Mozart. And uh, there was a concentration of talent. And for some reason, although I was a disorganized person, once my mind was on it and I was driven. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just me, of course. But I managed to galvanize. I raised the money for the pantomime by writing to all my sort of aristo-rich relations. Mm-hmm. We were raising money for the, um, for the Women's Refuge. So um, I would ask them to support money, to send me money for the Women's Refuge. And with that money, we put on the pantomime and with the ticket sales, we gave it to the Women's Refuge. So some of the kids from the refuge were in a pantomime. Brilliant. And what was kind of amazing about them was that the people, because it was a tight-knit community, you could make jokes about the... So there was all these jokes about sort of Notting Hill trustafarians. Mm-hmm. I think the first one was Cinderella and I was... Um, Prince Charming, and I was like a sort of coke-taking trustafarian. <laughs> and Kevin Allen was my sort of tarquin cracking coke. I don't know. <laughs> and then one of our friends was Buttons, who never got the girl, and he never did in real life, and the whole audience it was sort of sad. And they all knew. They all knew, and they were like laughing and crying. Oh. Lily Allen was in one of the ones when we when she was a little bit older, and mm. Poppy was always in them. Brilliant. Yeah. And that again was very, again, Jock would be very like, Anna, you've got to get out there. He was very championing of me to go out there and do things. And the first thing, first bit of theatre I ever did was with a friend of Jock's who was called Tam Dean Byrne who's a Scottish actor, who at that time was incredibly militantly left-wing. Really? And he had—he was part of something called the Workers' Revolutionary Theatre Party. And, well, he that was him. It was him, not a member. He ran it. <laughs> and he had all these actors, and we would go, and we would do plays, weirdly, from the 1930s, like original communist plays written in the 30s. And we'd perform them outside the trade unions. And, <laughs> the, the National Theatre. We did it outside the National Theatre when it was changed into the Royal National Theatre as a protest. <laughs> Tam was like a a sort of priest in the Easter uprising. He was very, very fine and committed. But jo- I was only there because of Jock. Jock would hold the baby and send me up and
0: So do you want to put that time with Jock?
1: Yeah, with... And, the, and the and centred around the Warwick Castle. The castle when Poppy yeah. was a baby and
0: have you been back to the Warwick Castle? Well, the
1: oh. funny thing is that I now rent a flat next door to it when I go to London. I share it with my nephew. Oh. And it's got this terrible sign on it saying, we sell fresh beer. A <laughs> job would just turn in his grave. Yeah. What does even fresh beer what mean? What does that mean? I don't know.
0: Where do you buy unfresh beer? I don't know. Oh, well, that's so Good. Oh yes. uh, well so yes, well we'll take you back to that.
1: Poppy's born in eighty seven, so that's, that's that's the sort of late eighties. Yeah, late eighties. Yeah.
0: Kevin yeah. Allen is fabulous, I love him, great director. Yeah. Uh Keith one of the most terrifying men in the world. Terrifying. Terrifying.
1: Keith would say to you, What are you wearing? Yeah, no, don't. You are he I remember him saying, in fact, I took it as an insult. He said, You just look like one of those girls who like run through a field and pick flowers. <laughs> that's, I, a, that's, I thought that's a, a bad it, thing. I thought it was an insult. Maybe he didn't mean it as an insult.
0: No, I think he did. He did, yeah. Mm, yeah, of course. I think I he think did. did. So we've got um we've got,
1: have we got two?
0: We've got two, yes. Yeah, so yes, I must
1: think of some more.
0: Think of some more. Um <laughs> Okay, we're going to take a short break here for some adverts. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass- Welcome back. OK, let's get straight back to Anna Chancellor and find out what else she'd like to put in her time capsule. And you're well, on your own, you're divorced.
1: Yeah, so we weren't married, but we were separated. Mm. I just survived. And amazingly, then I got this uh, Boddington's Beer commercial, <laughs> which was quite sort of a hit at the time. It was. They were popular commercials at the time. This was a takeoff of a Cornetto advert. Uh, and then and then maybe uh four weddings and a funeral came quite quickly off the back of that although i know that when they interviewed me i think they might have thought i was a bit of a, a loose cannon but i had had this love affair with this this terrible semi dangerous guy oh and he had bought me a pair of manola blani shoes which were very expensive and made out of black velvet and Mike Neal, at the time, they noticed the... they were, they were captured by these shoes. Uh, they were captivated by... I think it was between me and another girl, but they were like, let's bring her back and see if she's got those shoes on. That's what Mike told me recently.
0: Wow. Yeah, I applied that technique myself, I remember. Make yourself stand out. My father had told me, make yourself stand out. Do something to make them remember you. Do something that nobody else is going to do.
1: You're so trained, in a way, at drama school and everything, to be very obedient to do what you're told. Mm. But I actually don't think it's a fine line. You need to do what you're told. You need to turn up. You need to take notes. You need to execute them. But it mustn't be at the expense of who you are. And I think if you're too deferential, if you're too willing to comply, people have got to be a little bit hungry for you. Yeah. Even if you're no one.
0: There's got to be some element of danger as well, I think, in Mm -hmm. what you do. Some element of risk.
1: It's a very unknown science, though, isn't it? Because mm. sometimes you'd think, I was so good in that interview. Uh-huh. I was so fun and I looked great. And you'd ring up your agent, you know, any news, they'd be, no, that's a definite no. They're like, really?
0: Yeah, no, they immediately <laughs> said no.
1: Oh, no, they, they know they didn't want you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's very true.
1: Yeah. So it, did
0: you feel that about four weddings?
1: I think I thought. I had been for lots of auditions and nobody had been at all interested in me. And I remember I was driving my car and somebody stopped me and said, oh, Anna, have you got a job yet? And Poppy, who was in the back seat, shouted, she's never going to get a fucking job. (laughs) Which must have been everything that I said. (laughs) I thought I was never going to get a job. Yeah. I felt like I wasn't the right kind of person and I, I didn't have what anyone wanted. And I remember thinking, oh, I've got this wrong. I think... I'm not meant to be here to be a performer or I'm meant to be in the audience. I've somehow misunderstood my calling. I I literally remember telling myself that. So sometimes when people say to you, oh, I really wanted to be an actor, but I wouldn't have been any good. I was too this and that. I'd say, no, that's probably not true. Mm. You just make yourself say when things don't work out for you, you give it meaning and you you say, oh, this was the reason. I wasn't good enough. I was this. I was that. No, no, no. It's luck. Luck. I was lucky. Just at that time, I had something in me that those guys kind of found like a little bit nutty or something because Duckface was a bit of a nutter.
0: Yeah, and they didn't want someone to act it.
1: They probably were going for a little bit of reality there because I had no experience. They took a punt with me, I suppose.
0: Well, they did with everybody in that film. You can look at it now and say, full of famous people, but hardly anybody at the time. Simon Callow, I think, possibly. Everybody else, not famous. yeah. There was not a person in it that anybody had heard of, even Hugh Grant.
1: Yeah.
0: And then after the film went out, everybody in it was famous. Yeah. So they, the punt was there all the way along. Yeah. And a difficult he's... thing for Richard Curtis to do, because he's basically casting himself and all his friends. Because it's, it's incredibly autobiographical, that thing. I think I may have been at many of the weddings that he wrote about.
1: The funny thing is that that film was so popular even to people who weren't familiar with that world. Mm. Because when something is realistic enough, it doesn't matter whether it's part of your world or not. Even if it was about in, an air choir in sort of in choir or something, yeah, yeah. somewhere you've never been, something you know nothing about. If it hits and resonates on a certain reality, you can weirdly relate because if something's done truly, you believe it. And, and actually, I think when you look back at Four Weddings, it's it's strangely sort of not. It's not documentary-like, but some of the shooting actually is. When you see people coming into the church, churches, it's very kind of moving camera, people chatting, mm. and I think those the, the extras, so to speak, were their friends. They were real poshies who got bored. <laughs> For me, that was a. I couldn't really believe I was there. I mean, I remember bringing Poppy on set. I had no nanny. I had nothing. I was very broke. I, Nothing. Looked, it didn't look good. My outlook often didn't. I don't think from the outside probably looked that good. So I had no nanny. I remember taking her onto the set because she was also extremely naughty. She's one of the naughtiest kids I've met in my life before or since. And I thought, well, when they shout... Where well, does she get
0: that from? Yeah. <laughs>
1: when they shout, sort of turnover, you know, action, no-one dares speak, do they? No. Everyone's like... So I thought, this one might be quite good training for her. If I can't give her any sort of boundaries, maybe this film set can. <laughs> but, but And she, Andy McDowell had a lovely stand-in, beautiful, gentle woman, who sat with Poppy with her sort of hand clamped over her mouth. And Hugh was so funny. No, it was, it was a bit like you were dreaming. mm But I remember at the time Hugh saying to me, they think this might be successful like a fish called Wonder." I was like, do you really think so? He said, but I think it's awful, just so unbelievable, all his awful friends. (laughs) (laughs) It's so... I can't remember. He's always very critical in a very funny way of absolutely everything. Yeah, and almost everything he's
0: ever done. Yeah, He he talks about it as if it's rubbish.
1: Yeah, that's (laughs) a a defence, isn't it?
0: Yeah, Yeah. I mean, I've never known anybody who could do Richard Curtis better than Richard Curtis, apart from Hugh Grant. That character is so Richard. And I think, in fact, the line at the end may even be something that he said to Emma Freud. The, do you want to not
1: marry me? Yeah, they were just... I think they were quite newly together then. Mm. But Hugh's got a kind of uh, muscularity in his acting. People thought that he was sort of Fey and just playing himself, and he maybe got quite a lot of stick, although he was very successful. Mm. But actually, again, when, when I've seen, seen it again, I'm always... I'm always impressed by the sort of power of Hugh. You know, he's competitive, he's a sportsman, he's like, collects famous art, you know, he's, he's not a fool. And there's something in that, the way he works. We did a Red Nose Day, like, um, Reprieve. I mean, not that long ago. Oh, I had a couple of lines with Hugh. It wasn't, Dark didn't really feature <laughs> Reprieve. But even in this one line, or this little time we had together, I remembered what he was like and how great he was. I felt we were very, we, we spoke a similar language, or we, and I think I remembered that from before, that we'd got on well, mm. that we had... Something about the way we worked was...
0: Uh... Well, I think all good actors like to examine the, the details of things.
1: Yeah, but that can drive some people mad don't yeah, it I does
0: think. drive some people they just say well just do it
1: I know and it I know in just... rehearsing plays and stuff I, I think maybe I am very annoying <laughs> I'm like well if we were sitting being interviewed here wouldn't there be more stuff on the table because wouldn't he need to really you know maybe yes, like, yes, oh yes, I don't know yes. and I go alright well, but where's the tea and now I've taken up smoking I think I should be smoking the interview don't uh, you yeah. <laughs> can just say the lines yeah, they're like, I don't yeah, just say the lines. <laughs> but I feel they're wrong.
0: No, no, I feel
1: they're wrong because I feel that is very boring a lot of the time because I feel that the dictator has made you hurry up. Yes. I, I feel for me, the first about doing a play is that you need to be able to be very free at the beginning which must be a nightmare for the director because um, it must look like a fucking mess. <laughs> no one's off the book. You know they want you off the book and they want it to be organised. They, Everybody likes organisation and control. Well, I they guess. want to
0: see it done. They want to be sure that it can be done.
1: Yeah. I think for good. me is that, that is a big mm. mistake because again when we were talking about actors being very obedient actors are quite easily scared. I know a lot of us are assholes too and maybe scare the director so it's coming both ways but I think that if you can create a rehearsal room, and probably on film too, where people can make mistakes, where people can slightly be their sort of ticky, annoying selves. Mm. And like with a kid, you know, let them settle and then see how it... Let the chaos... And then if you're a good director, then you know, ah, oh, well, we'll keep that and we'll lose all of that crap. Mm. So we'll let you work out these... minute
0: So do you think, if I take you back full circle, really, then, do you think seeing those people doing their artistic work in a community of people and being, well, very committed to it, mm. but really enjoying it, that actually that may have affected the way that you just went through life.
1: I think there was a seriousness to it and th- th- that it was important, but also there was this attitude to other people, that there was an interest in each other, there was a support of each other. Mm. There was a sort of coherence in their way they were with each other. It was compelling to be, to be part of.
0: And the worth of what they were doing was not necessarily judged by the monetary value of it.
1: They were overlooked. They never got their time. They never got their fifteen minutes. They were turned away. A lot of them from the um, from the Royal Academy exhibitions. Mm. The art world missed a trick. It will go back. It will go on in 50 years, maybe even now, and say, what was happening in, with rural artists of the 70s? Mm. They didn't feed them. Our society, our world of art, where they, they weren't noticeable enough. No. And it was a missed trip. Yes. You know, many, many people are very, very talented and they don't get their moment there's been so much talent and so much that could have been given to england mm. so much we could have learned from immigrants coming into this country and it doesn't even matter maybe in the end what background you're from just take individuals people yeah. had things to offer not not just a profession or a or a community and they were turned away mm-hmm. It's such a waste of resources. That's what I'm saying.
0: Just a waste of resources.
1: (laughs) That's what I'm saying.
0: Yeah. Well, and then if you apply that to a worldview, which is that there are hundreds of millions of people who don't even ever have an education, never get fed properly, and never shown anything, and you sort of go, well, amongst them is the person who, who, had they been shown it, might have gone, well, the cure for cancer is obvious, isn't it? Yeah,
1: I know. I know.
0: But well, we need to find something from all this chat. We need to find something to put into the time catcher. So I'm going to suggest to you... Yes, a different... Because it's sort of a way it's opened up all that that we've talked about would be those fantastic shoes.
1: Yes, that's clever. Well, but because, you know, that came from an unhappy love affair, a difficult yes. time in my life, and it was a present given to me out of a sort of... Not you're my mistress, but, you know, that sort of yeah. something not very heartfelt. They're no, anyway, almost dressing
0: you up. Yeah, yourself. that. Mm.
1: And it was those that caught the eye of Richard and, and Mike Newell. <laughs> Isn't that funny?
0: <laughs> yes. And that turning point, that, that suddenly you thinking to yourself, you know, and Poppy saying she's never going to fucking get a job. She's
1: never going to get a job.
0: Well, know. that's funny. So we will put those in as that's well. That's good. That's good. All right. There are two more things to go in and yeah. we're going to be S- Am I
1: talking too long? No. Um, okay, well, the next thing I'll tell you is that um, I married a cameraman and it was, should have been a love affair, right, not a marriage. Mm-hmm. But when the marriage broke down, it broke down very quickly. It was like we dropped a sort of glass bowl and both of us looked at it and couldn't bother to pick up a piece. <laughs> it, we would be living a sort of dissolute life. And I was working in the theatre. I was in a, a, a double bill, uh, a Peter Shaffer and Tom Stoppard double bill in the West End. And it was the opening night. We were on the verge of separating. And I was in my dressing room and I, I remember thinking, oh my God, I, he hasn't even called me or, or sent me a card or anything. And I remember feeling very, very alone. And, you know, everything had fallen apart. And I didn't really know really what I was going to do. I was, I was a heavy marijuana smoker. (laughs) Um, And we were in the West End and I called up my local cab company and I said, um, could you just send me some... There was an old Indian guy who was a bala. He was a really nice man. I said, could you send bala to pick me up on matinee nights to take me home? And she said, well, I can, but not tonight because he's at a wedding. She said, but I'll send you someone that you'll like. Round the corner came this young guy corkscrew hair, like in an Adidas tracksuit, kind of like a young footballer or something. Mm. And uh, and I got in the front of the car and I went, where are you from? And he said, yes. And I went, well, I don't know, the Mediterranean somewhere. He said, yes. And I went all around the Mediterranean, but I didn't realise that Arabic countries were on the Mediterranean. I thought course, it was only yeah. Uh, yeah. from Algeria.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Anyway, I kind of fancied him. <laughs> and... Uh, then I started to ring up Grove Cars saying, can I have like two, four? That was his number, two, four. And they were like, yes, yes, yes. So he'd come round, but the switchboard was always jammed for him because he was very popular. The whole of Riverdance wanted him. It was that, like, <laughs> the
0: wanted him. <laughs>
1: but I managed to get my way in and say, please come and come and get me. So he said, come and get me, but my husband was still living at home, but I didn't want to go home. So me and me and Rita would um, we'd walk round. I'd say, "Oh, come on, have a have a uh, falafel with me on the way home." So we'd stop in Marble Arch and have a falafel, and then we'd walk round um, Hyde Park at night. It was strange time because I obviously did have friends. <laughs> I must have had friends <laughs> and family, but I felt like there was I felt there was no one to turn to, or I felt very alone, and maybe I needed someone to help me. And I think he felt the same. He'd been married, he'd separated from his wife, and we began to hang hang out together. I was always trying to make him sleep with me, but he wouldn't. (laughs) He'd say, you're married. I'd go, and? Who cares? (sighs) He'd be like, I care. Uh I'd never met anyone who had a a moral code. (laughs) (laughs) And then I was furious. I said, well, what's your relationship with God then? What is your relationship with God? And he would say, it's indisputable. And I was jealous. I was jealous of that foundation, poor belief. Certainty. Certainty. Mm. I felt that I did not have any of that. And um, after a while, I think I kind of bankrupted him because he stopped at at his most busiest time, he was with me
0: (laughs) walking around the park.
1: Walking around the park, eating (laughs) falafels, and sort Uh of probably, I'd probably be crying and things. And um, eventually, my husband left. And then I got a job in, um, in Japan. I was Regan to Nigel Hawthorne's Lear. It was a terrible production where they, Nina Gower, they threw rocks from the sort of ceiling of the theatre so narrowly missing uh, Nigel Hawthorne. Oh, no. <laughs> it was an interminable production. But we went, so I went. But Rita then moved into the garden shed and my best friend moved into my house and Rita did the school run. I said, well, come and see me. Then we were faxing each other. I suppose we were falling in love with each other, but still nothing had ever happened. I said, oh, come on, come and see me in Japan. And the woman who was our producer was called um, Thelma Holt. And uh, she was a maverick theatre producer who'd put all of these foreign... Um, companies together with English companies and bought in German companies. And She was very funny, with bright red hair and a huge butt- bottom and always wearing isemayaki. <laughs> Would never stop talking. You sometimes walk into a room and Thelma was just talking. You'd be like, well, who is she talking to? <laughs> I said, Thelma, I've got this guy and I really want him to come and see me, but they won't let him. He can't get the visa or whatever it is he needs. She said, well, just say he's working for the uh, Royal Shakespeare Company. We'll put him on the list. <laughs>
0: Brilliant.
1: So he came out And by this time, I'd I'd stopped drinking and taking drugs and misbehaving. And I had gone back to being like a kind of 13-year-old. I felt really shy. And I remember I got all these spots like I had acne, like I (laughs) I, I reverted. (laughs) Then Reader came out. He'd been to Japan. He'd worked in Japan. He'd worked in Tokyo. I hadn't been able to find my way around Tokyo because I couldn't read any of the signs. Then Reader came out. He knew everywhere to go. And there was a famous actor, Japanese actor in the company called Hiro Sanada. And um, I said, we had the weekend off. We never had a weekend off, but we had this one weekend off. And his assistant booked us in to this Ryokan, to this incredible hotel at the the, the base of Mount Fuji. Very, very um, sort of old-fashioned Japanese hotel where they served you. And there we kind of got together, me and Rita, Finally, finally, after about well, probably been about a year, I and mean, that was twenty four years ago.
0: Good lord, that's fabulous.
1: I know it's extraordinary because
0: so that being an honourable man and having a moral basis to his life. Do
1: you know he probably found me too much?
0: He probably thought oh, I can't go into this can't woman face yet.
1: Face her.
0: Once you bought him a ticket to Japan, he thought, yeah, okay, why not?
1: Once someone put him on the list of the RSC. <laughs> you know, so then, so, yeah.
0: Well, that's lovely, though. I'm going to put a falafel into the time capsule.
1: That's funny.
0: It'll stay fresh.
1: That's funny. Lovely.
0: So you'll get the smell. Once you open it again, you've got the smell immediately and it can remind you.
1: That's funny. Yeah. So that's Reader. That's
0: how I met Reader. That's lovely. Yeah. So talking through your... Your life, as we sort of had been, there were points in it where you might have looked at it and gone, well, there's no hope for this girl.
1: You could have done. <laughs> yeah.
0: She's you, not going to get a job.
1: She doesn't look she's, maybe so totally imbiable. She.
0: She's with she's the already, completely the wrong crowd.
1: She's always going out with the wrong people. <laughs>
0: mm. Look, she's messed everything up.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you could see it like that.
0: And yet, here you are 24 years later. Yeah. Well, there we are. So we've got one more thing. I think to put in... the
1: last thing we'll do is that my daughter Poppy, who, like I told you, was like the naughtiest child of the... She looked like I'd stolen her from... What... Jock was from gypsy descent. She had this very, very Celtic white, white face and blue eyes and uh, um, yeah. absolutely like a ruffian, she looked, <laughs> pierced ears. And... and she turned into this unbelievably sort of svelte, very talented artist. She's a um, illustrator and very clever and smart. She's a sort of upgrade in a lot of ways.
0: <laughs>
1: and just, just this wonderful person.
0: Where does she live now?
1: So she lives in Brixton,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but, but she, they're, they're selling their flat and hopefully moving to Brighton.
0: Oh, right, coming back yeah. to be close.
1: Yeah. So Poppy met this great guy, Johnny, and they decided to get married, but they had this very small wedding, which was. I, I said, Poppy, if it's going to be so small, just, just don't tell anyone. It was just you know her, me, and Reader, and her family. Mm-hmm. I said, don't, don't, don't tell anyone. Just do it, and then you can tell them. Well, this turned out to be fatal, so they did it, and then the whole of my family were absolutely distraught.
0: Oh no! They were like,
1: how could you do that? So my brother, who lives in Somerset, where we were you brought up said, Parker we're not going to have this. You're going to have to have another one. <laughs> and he lives in a very, very beautiful bit of Somerset. And there's this wonderful church, which we all walk to when we go for walks there, called Raddington, which is just this very, very early, simple church with those very high pews from the very early churches. And it sticks out a bit like a boat on the sort of prow of a hill. And he spoke to the um, priest there, woman priest, and said, listen, can I give you some money for the roof of the church? Oh, and by the way, could you just do us a little blessing? She said, well, I can fit you in on a Sunday morning before service. So we had to be there at 9.30 for it to be sort of done by 10. So we all sort of, all sort of hastily arrived. Poppy kind of grabbed something from my cupboard on the way down, a dress that a great friend of mine who sadly died, she'd worked for a designer, our better for it, and had given me this dress, Black beautiful dress, like a sort of ha- like a hanky, like a silk hanky, and Poppy kind of grabbed that, and I grabbed some green dress, and we woke up in my brother's house. So that's that's I've got three sisters and a brother, and we were all staying in his house or nearby, and we he, we got up that morning. He was like, "Hurry, everyone! For God's sake, hurry!" And we were just like charging to the church, and it was raining <laughs> like this. And a tree had fallen down. We had to sort of get past and muddily sort of get into the church. And there was nothing in the church. You know, it was just this empty church. And she was late. The priest was late because of the fallen tree. Mm. And I just got this image of her sort of dressing and having to undress, a bit like in a play at the end of the... She was like, coming! (laughs) You know, just sort of pulling on her hassock. they it called a hassock?
0: Yeah. (laughs) Or a cassock. Cassock. No, no, yeah, not a hassock. Cassock.
1: Pulling on her cassock. And sort of quickly, quickly, and uh, my sister had arrived with her banjo and early, and she was just like playing her banjo while everybody was arriving and none of us had seen each other, and some were in their gumboots and some were in their raincoats and some <laughs> were dressed up more finely and Big was there, Poppy and Johnny were. And Poppy had also grabbed, um, I think from our house, like I had these um, paper flowers. So she was just holding a bunch of these paper flowers that a friend of hers had made. And... When people spoke, whoever got up to speak, my my brother read this poem by Swift, which was called the sort of the whore and the <laughs> I don't know, it's too inappropriate, but nobody could stop anyone from doing what they were doing. Yes. And the pews were very high, and I remember my nephew was very hungover and sort of crashed out in the pews and it was just incredibly moving. It was so impromptu. And she gave this beautiful service and talked so off the cuff and so lovingly about this young couple. And we all went back to my brother's house and my brother-in-law is a chef and he just made us some lasagna. And we all just stood up one by one and talked about Poppy and about our life and how it hadn't always looked, (laughs) how Jock wasn't there. And, you know, it was, I think it it just, it feeds into what I said about theatre and, it was very um, organic and very unorganized and extremely
0: moving. Mm. It's the fifth wedding.
1: It was. <laughs> 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 Look, Richard maybe could have written it a bit.
0: It sounds like it, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah.
1: There is something about when your child is really happy in love, mm. you know, and they've found somebody who suits them. Mm. And in a way maybe because things have been chaotic for us and there's always at the back of your mind say something happened to me and you know I don't know y- you feel job done a bit you know
0: yes no I do exactly know
1: I don't know what we're going to say is the time capsule for the last one do you think
0: what one thing to sum up that whole do wedding I think it's the
1: hassock the cassock
0: <laughs> put a the cassock on. <laughs> I love the church on the hill though yeah I just love the view of it.
1: It's like a little Thomas Hardy chapel or something. Yeah. Very West But country. then
0: also you did that thing right at the end of it where you sort of, in a way, brushed your hands together says if that burden has gone.
1: Yeah.
0: That feeling, that moment of thinking, yes, everything could have gone wrong and it's gone so beautifully right. Yeah. Yeah, it's been lovely to talk to you. What a fantastic time capsule. <laughs> thank you.
1: Thank you, thank you, thank you.
0: You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Michael Fenton Stevens, and my guest, the fascinating Anna Chancellor. You can subscribe to this podcast on Acast or wherever you usually get your podcasts. If the opportunity arises at all, we'd be very pleased if you would rate us and review the podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Just search for My TC Pod. And the theme tune by Pass the Peas Music is available on Spotify. This podcast was a cast-off production produced by John Fenton Stevens. If you're looking for someone to produce your podcast, very reasonable rates. Well, at least they are for me. He's my son. Hey, hang on a minute. If you lot start pricing me out of the market, I'm buggered. I couldn't do this on my own, you know. Well, till next time, if there is a next time, bye.